Hi everyone, Anthony Fantano here, internet's busiest music nerd, and welcome to another episode of the Needle Drop Podcast, a weekly roundup of our reviews and best think piece segments. In this episode, we have a, a, a collection of some pretty great album coverage for you. One, we are going to be getting into one of the best abstract hip-hop releases I have heard this year, the new Armand Hammer album, Paraffin. I'm also going to be talking about the new Eminem record, Kamikaze, a very controversial and uh, polarizing hip-hop record that dropped this year. A lot of people have been talking about it. I will throw my two cents in. Also, I'm covering a bit of synth-pop, chill-wave, shoegaze. There's a lot of different genres going into this one very short, very punchy, and very sonically dense album, George Clanton's Slide. And I will also be covering what I feel is one of the best punk records of the decade, hands down, the brand new Idols album, Joy as an Act of Resistance. I will also be talking about some of the social fallout surrounding the new Eminem and some drama involving a featured artist on the album not being happy with the sentiment of the song that he was placed on. And I will also be talking about a weird stipulation that I got in a letter from a fan about would Two Pimp a Butterfly still be a 10 out of 10 if Takashi 69 had made it. That is going to be this episode of the Needle Drop Podcast with Anthony Fantano. Here we go. And it's time for a review of the new Armand Hammer, Paraffin. This is the latest full-length album from New York hip-hop duo Elucid and Billy Woods, a.k.a. Armand Hammer. I first covered the duo back in 2015 when they dropped their debut album, Race Music. I enjoyed the project's abstract, heavy production, and very grim, cryptic lyricism from two of the East Coast's most unique rappers right now. Their follow-up album a few years later, Rome, I found to be a little underwhelming. An album that was much raw than their debut, with a lot of the production taking on a lo-fi tone with some very repetitive loops. It felt like there was less lyrical and vocal impact on the album overall in comparison with the last record. To me, it was almost as if Billy and Elucid were on autopilot just a little bit for this one. As each of them dropped sizable solo projects within this same span of time, so I'm not sure if that stretched things thin a little bit. As someone who's consistently been a fan of Arm & Hammer and Billy Woods, pretty much anything that that dude touches, the record brought a lot of the same qualities and characteristics that I enjoyed about Arm & Hammer's previous work, but I just failed to see the album as the duo making a significant improvement on their sound. But now that I'm hearing this new album, it feels almost as if Rome was laying the groundwork for the grimy, dirty, grim, and psychedelic avenues that Arm & Hammer take their songs down here. Tracks like the Boomy and Abyssal Rehearse with Ornette are bold standouts because there's all this intense feedback woven into the beat. It's incredibly eerie. Then there's these ethereal jazz loops on the song Detol. The jazz sampling on this cut adds a sour, dramatic tone to the weird mix of sentimental, dark, and tragic bars on the cut. Then there's the Nightmarish Furman tapes, whose instrumental is so frightening I really can't even start to describe it accurately. Not to mention there are some genius beat switches on this album too, like the roaring rock guitars that bust in suddenly at the end of If He Holla. Meanwhile, the first leg of the track is painted with these really faint, 
what sounds like new metal samples or something or a metalcore breakdown. I'm not sure. It's really buried into the beat, but adds a perfect amount of very subtle texture. Then there's the jazzy flute hits and woozy electric pianos that suddenly pop in on alternate side parking, which is absolutely eargasmic. The moment that transition happens, it's like time just slows down. Overall, the production on this thing is fantastic. It sounds very much in tribute to some of the best underground hip-hop artists and acts of the late 90s and the 2000s. You know, we're talking Def Jux and Stones Throw, MF Doom, Mad Lib, that sort of thing, LP as well, but I would say that Armand Hammer and their producers take it a step further. Because these beats, they're textured, they're heavy, they're lazy, they're groovy, but sometimes they're also glitching out, or they are soaked and treated in these psychedelic delays and distortions and filters, which works really well for Elucid and Billy Wood's respective cerebral lyrical styles. And there are a lot of amazing amazing and esoteric samples littered throughout this thing too, many of which are methodically treated and manipulated, chopped up, so placing their origin sometimes can be difficult. If you have listened to Elucid or Billy Woods or Arm & Hammer before, there are some familiar faces on the production end of this thing like Kenny Siegel and Willie Green. Elucid also handles quite a few of the beats on this thing too. I will say though, Elucid and Billy sometimes are throwing in everything but the kitchen sink on these beats, and it does drown out some of the vocals on a couple of tracks here take away from that lyrical impact, but still, they do bring a strong sonic vibe. Because lyrically and sonically, a lot of these songs sound like they're coming straight out of a hip-hop twilight zone, where Billy Woods and Elucid are processing some serious mental demons, some PTSD, paranoia as well. Elucid and Woods also have quite a bit of lyrical chemistry on this album, certainly much more than they presented on Rome, as it felt like they were kind of separate on that record. Here, though, they're kind of reinforcing one another topically on tracks like No Days Off, which is very much a track about economic struggles or even trading bars and little mini-verses back and forth with each other on a track here and there. But for the most part, each artist's verses on this record don't necessarily add up into a super clear narrative. A lot of what they are spitting is a lot of non-sequitur stuff, tangent stuff, but consistently it's pretty slick, cleverly worded, and despondent. And on the macro level, I think the album does paint a lyrical portrait of what happens to people who live on the fringes of society, who slip through the cracks of a callous America. I think a bar from Billy Woods at the end of the track If He Holla kind of encapsulates the lyrical tone of both him and Elucid's verses throughout a great deal of the album, and uh, that is off-message even when I'm on topic. Collectively, Elucid and Woods weave together these lyrical flashes of systematic marginalization, criminality, and New York's dark underbelly, which is not new lyrical territory for these two given, but I do think both of them are approaching these topics more boldly than they were half a decade ago when they forged this duo, and certainly uh, existing under the Trump administration has given them more material to work with. In his verses, Billy continues to be one of the most hilarious, witty, but also grim rappers that I know, saying things like, Every live show, forget the lyric. Forty doing Ty Bo. Who'd have guessed this be how I finished? To everyone who got caught, I'm there in spirit. He continues delivering these lyrics in this kind of casual but shouted delivery and flow. It's like he's the town crier if the town were Twin Peaks. And often in his verses, he'll go off on these weird lyrical diatribes that don't necessarily add up into a clear story, but they connect line to line in interesting ways. The perpetrator was a different shade of black, beat the case, said let him eat cake in his raps, service weapon in my face, 
All I could see was his lips chapped. Wouldn't recognize him if I saw him today. Chokehold slowly closed the airways. Sunken place, I can't stay. You built it on Indian graves, the lead character exclaims. It's funny because Billy's rap style sort of forces you to change perspectives again and again and again and like recontextualize what exactly he's trying to say with each single bar every single time because he's coming through with an off reference or he's rapping from another point of view. It's it's really an insane way of painting a picture. Also in his verses, he continues to come off like a man who just knows too much. Like if he were just throwing names out there in his rhymes and actually put more context into what he was saying, he'd literally be snitching on himself or other people. Like on the song Alternate Side Parking, where he brings up this line about getting into a car and <laughs> people don't tell you the car is stolen until you're already in it and rolling. Which for anybody who's been in a situation where uh, someone else is kind of putting your livelihood in danger, that should put a pit in your stomach. A lot of the time it feels like Billy is trying to tell cautionary tales in a world that he constantly paints as being evil, or at least the world that he is surrounded by. And as I said before, that lyrical wit that he has, it's on full display on this album, as a lot of his one-liners on this record are hilarious, but like with his previous material, there's usually a very dark and grim reveal there to whatever that dark joke he is throwing out there, as he's exposing a lot of harsh realities that for most people are kind of out of sight, out of mind. A lot of things he says, in my opinion, have the effect of, I don't know, lifting a blanket or something only to find there's an intrusion of cockroaches underneath it scattering in every direction. And one of my favorite lyrics from him on this album actually comes toward the end of the record as Billy says, I found some people would rather die than cut you a slice of the pie. Now, Elucid is not without his own sense of humor, his universally true statements on this album. There's one spot on the track Black Garlic that stood out to me as he rants again and again, legalese is designed to overwhelm you. Legalese is designed to overwhelm you. As statistically speaking, it does seem like the legal system in a lot of ways is designed to disenfranchise the poor, the uneducated. Now, Elucid's rap style is different but complementary to Billy's in that it's pretty rapid fire, a little overwhelming. He's got some really dynamic flows, a raspy voice, and a lot of word choices that just kind of feel like dictionary deep cuts. Things that I think people who are like, let's say, Aesop Rock fans will really enjoy. But on this album, Elucid lays a lot of very heavy political themes into his verses. As throughout this record, he is not shy at all when it comes to approaching racism, inequality, Trump. Uh, corrupt police. And he can get pretty existential too on some of the cuts here. Like uh, one bar that stood out to me on the track Hunter is when he was rapping about speaking to an unframed sky, uh, combined with just how atmospheric and open the instrumental on that track is. I think that line speaks a lot to the gigantic vastness that surrounds our insignificant existence on planet Earth. I also like the way he poetically put the lows of low wages on the track No Days Off. Let me get your supervisor on the phone. Late stage capital shooting down the living wage. Caveman figure rational. Castles with eyes in the sky. Claiming both the proud and the wise. Normalize us with the fuck shit. The corporation they must trust. I'll get that for you. No rush. And as I said before, Elucid can be witty and humorous as well. Like on the track Black Garlic, I absolutely love the tangent he goes off on with that track as he's kind of spitting about internet hip-hop culture, bringing up DJ Vlad doing what, like, white-splaining to disinterested black women. Then he talks about Lil Wayne doing an acoustic cover of the song Sign of the Times. It just seems like an absurd parody. It's also fitting on this album at one point that he drops a reference to Halfway Crooks, because as I was listening through to this record, I did get 
almost like a mob deep vibe at points. Like like <laughs> Woods and Elucid are this totally underground, abstract, like, version of, of Mob Deep, in a way. And oddly enough, there's also something about this record that kind of makes me want to compare it to the recent Travis Scott record, Astroworld. But if the production's psychedelic tendencies were meant more to put you in a state of depression than put you in a state of euphoria, not to mention also that Arm & Hammer actually has something of substance to say, but I think both albums are comparably experimental, intoxicating, and also feature a lot of interesting musical transitions within songs or from track to track. Knowing their outsider status and their feelings about their artistic process, I'm not exactly sure if Elucid and Woods would appreciate that comparison, but uh, I, I don't know. It's just a vibe that I caught. Overall, I think this is a great record. I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I think it's one of the best abstract hip-hop records I've heard in a while. At its best, this thing is amazingly produced, texturally deep, super stimulating, and lyrically layered like an onion. There's tons of replay value in this record, and it just reveals feels more and more and more with each listen. At its worst, though, this album can be really indirect, to the point where it can feel a little unengaging. It can also be really impenetrable. So if you're a newcomer to abstract hip-hop or Arm & Hammer in general, don't necessarily come into this album expecting to just get it right off the bat. The album is also super self-indulgent, which may turn some people off, and there are a handful of short, like, two-minute cuts on here, which I think could have used a bit more structure just to leave a stronger impact, but really there was nothing on this album I thought was so bad it was worth skipping. Even the most underwhelming or lackluster moments on this thing feature some great lyrics or some super creative production. The narrative and the flow of the entire album isn't really all that strong as it does feel pretty random at points. The finishing track is kind of despondent and does give a, a real sense of finality though, but despite lacking in those departments, Billy and Elucid do a good job of creating a nice momentum track to track to track, as there are some quick and interesting transitions from one song to another, making the listening experience with this album kind of seamless. Feeling a decent two strong eight on this one. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Eminem album, Kamikaze. This is the new surprise album from top selling rapper of all time, Detroit's own Eminem. An artist who honestly needs no introduction, but it is worth going over what exactly has brought us to this point right here. Truth be told, Eminem had a pretty rough 2017, and all because he dropped one of the worst albums of the year, easily the worst album of his career, Revival. A record that received industry-wide backlash from fans and critics alike. I know that I myself was pretty upset with the horrible guests and production, the excruciating choruses, and the obnoxious staccato flows Eminem would deliver in every track. Oh, and there's also Eminem's painfully cringy bars on tracks like uh, Bad Husband and Offended, just to name a few. I do give it to Eminem that he does come up with some clever double entendres. He does have some pretty unique flows and he does rap fast. <laughs> I cannot take that away from him, but I think Eminem doesn't fully appreciate that these things alone don't make a good album. A hard truth I think he's kind of lost touch with since the release of some of his biggest and earliest albums like the Slim Shady and Marshall Mathers LPs. On those albums, Eminem was an underdog weirdo with a refreshing style, as well as a brutally dark and a cartoony sense of humor, and at times he would get really serious as well and go into some really traumatic territory like violence and abuse and bullying. 
addiction and his own lack of self-control, his personal struggles with fatherhood. Eminem at one time was an unrepentant asshole whose rough upbringing gave him license to take his anger out on the ugly world that took him to the top of the charts. He was hip-hop's anti-hero, and his abrasive personality was something that you either loved him or hated him for. And most importantly, back in the day, I think Eminem actually cared how his tracks worked as songs, not just as platforms to complain on top of. Musically and topically, Eminem used to really have it together, but these days, not so much. Which brings us to Kamikaze. It's an album that, in a lot of respects, is merely a reaction to the negative reactions that Revival justifiably got. Now, of course, there are a handful of tracks on this album that do not work that angle. There are some relationship cuts on this record where Eminem continues to lay out his struggles with romance and picking out Mrs. Wright and functioning normally in a healthy relationship, like on tracks such as Normal and the sister songs, Good Guy and Nice Guy. These songs are maybe not as awful as some of the more lovesick moments off of Revival. The song Normal sounds like M on his Drake shit, with a super spacey beat and chill melodic flow. It's very laid back, it's kind of serene, but Eminem lyrically applies those usual themes of anger and violence and borderline psychosis that typically pepper a lot of his love songs, love songs. The singing is kind of weak, but I do admire the ambition of the track. The beat switch in the last leg is pretty great, and some of the stalking bars in the final moments of the song are pretty hilarious, too. And the song Nice Guy with Jesse Reyes has a multifaceted hook, like a nice pre-chorus before it. It's got a bassy banger beat, this odd shouted suck my d refrain right before Jesse pops in on top of these glamorous pianos. This whole section of the track feels almost Kanye-esque to me. Her performance feels as psychotic as some of Eminem's lyrics on the track do. Even though I don't really care for how short the song is cut off, I do think the song works as a concept piece about two people who should have never agreed to be in this very volatile relationship. But then we get a sudden transition into this romantic track, a Good Guy, which takes a much more apologetic tone, and I don't know, it, it, it just seems like a, a weak change-off to a more sappy sound, uh, something that kind of reminds me of like that really awful Ed Sheeran cut that landed on Revival. I get what Eminem is trying to do here with the emotional flip of these two tracks and how they kind of mirror each other in a lot of ways, but I, I think... I think the transition and the whole idea here could have been executed a lot better. And there's also the track Stepping Stone, where Eminem essentially apologizes to his former group D12 for the fracture in their relationship over the death of Pooh, as well as his own addiction issues and career responsibilities. I like the personal angle, the heartfelt tone of the track, the performance from Eminem, on an emotional level is pretty good, it seems sincere, but it's not really a high point on the album. As the hook is a little rough, the beat seems a little underbaked, like a lot of cuts off of Revival did, as there is this sudden rush of snares that fly in that guide us into the verses of the track that get kind of 
blown out and they clip and they distort and they sound horrendous. Again, this is not the kind of production that you expect to be on an album from a top selling artist, a platinum selling artist. And what the hell is this ugly, completely unlistenable, jagged, melodic flow backed up with these synth strings that Eminem hits us up with in the last leg of the song? To my partners, I can't say how sorry I am. This is not how I plan for our story to end. I love all of you, man, but I can't be the guy. That is the worst sounding flow I've heard this year. That, that, is, that is such a horrendous flow. Just because you have the technical ability to do something, does not mean you should do it or that it sounds good. Unfortunately, this is a lesson I think Eminem has yet to learn. But for the most part, this apology song just feels like an extended excuse because it's not like Shady Records couldn't have backed D12 much in the same way that they did Slaughterhouse. And as Eminem explains on the hook, the whole motivation behind this song seems driven less by Eminem's feelings about the pain he might have caused people, and more by the awkwardness that he'll feel if he doesn't wipe the slate clean before his career hits rock bottom, and he might see some of the people who he hurt face to face. Which is kind of an awful reason to apologize for anything. I mean, throughout the song you say that you didn't mean to use D12 as a stepping stone, but all signs point to yes. And honestly, I don't really feel like this track is as deep or as meaningful or as helpful as legitimately putting an olive branch out there or finding some way to aid in the group's career at this point. But maybe Eminem just really doesn't have it in him to do anything other than just shrug in song and say, hey guys, I'm having a hard time charting myself at this point, okay? There's also the song Venom, the closer on this thing, and of course this song is going to be on the upcoming movie's soundtrack. That's that's just perfect. I can't really comment on this song outside of saying it, it has one of the ugliest choruses I've ever heard in Eminem's entire career. Venom, adrenaline, get em, get em, ain't gonna know what hit em, Venom. How is this real life? How, how is this a real thing that a mainstream artist does on their song? The rest of the album, though, is pretty much Eminem getting confrontational with his critics or this new wave of trap rappers that, in his opinion, aren't really up to snuff lyrically. They're not up to his technical ability, man. Though Eminem on this album does employ some trendier beats and producers and flows, too. Though much of the time when he does this, it feels like he's trying to parody a more contemporary sound or just kind of show the audience, hey, I can do this too. <laughs> Aren't I cool too? And in some ways I do think it makes the material and Eminem on this album a bit more palatable, but his consistently bitter and vengeful tone throughout a lot of the songs on this album kind of cancels that out. An attitude that is very much set by the opening track on this thing, The Ringer. Keep in mind this track and the entire album kicks off with Eminem muttering into the microphone, I feel like I want to punch the world in the face right now! <sighs> You're so dramatic. Yeah, this track is not as much a song as it is just Eminem ranting with a flow. Responding to his critics with some pretty half-assed, lazy, and boring arguments like, <laughs> I'm an artist, 
You guys aren't artists. You'll never be artists. You guys just want sliders. Revival is a porterhouse. It's too deep for you to get. If you don't get my music, you're retarded. I bet you guys would have liked my last album if it was auto-tuned. There's even a bar on the track where he says that media journalists can get a mouthful of flesh. And yes, I mean eating a penis. Yeah, dude, it's an Eminem album. We know you mean eating a penis. There's another bar on this track where he tries to beat his detractors to the inevitable critique of this album by saying, oh, well, why is he taking out the fact that his album sucks on us? Usually when you try to delegitimize the point of view of your haters, by throwing their opinions out there before they do, you might try to exaggerate a flaw in their reasoning to point out how stupid that is. Really do or say anything to diffuse that argument, but yet Eminem doesn't do that. He just simply states that people are going to point out that he's essentially throwing a lyrical temper tantrum on this song because people didn't like his last record, which is true. You are throwing a temper tantrum on this track because you don't like the fact that people pointed out that your last album sucked. It, that's all true. It's all still true. You, you didn't make that any less legitimate an argument. Granted, the track does have some impressive flows and rhymes, but uh, once again, I feel like what good things Eminem brings forward are canceled out by the sad bitterness of the song. It's really annoying, especially considering there was a time in Eminem's career when he either took criticism in stride or he responded to it in a smart way that seemed like it was kind of rolling off his back. The following track, The Greatest, is way more enjoyable, relatively speaking. M essentially wanting to show that he has more more aggression and flow and lyrics than his contemporaries, so he just kind of puts it out there. He does his thing over a pretty catchy beat, a somewhat obnoxious hook on this thing, but I'll take it. It's definitely more likable than a lot of what else is on this thing. He continues to throw shots at other rappers and his detractors, but at least on this track he seems a lot less butthurt while doing it. He also brings some hilariously callous references to mass shooters and uh, some, some nice rap god flows too. The song Lucky You, oddly enough, I found to be one of the better tracks in the track listing here, even if some people don't really care for the featured artist on this thing, Joyner Lucas. I think his flows on the track are top notch. Some of his lyrics are pretty smart and funny. The beat's not too bad, but really the highlight, the crown jewel of the track is Eminem's verse, where it seems like he has a lyrical moment of clarity, admitting that he sold a lot of his artistry up the river to become more famous, more popular, and that he legitimately took an L for his bad album last year. A handful of bars stood out when he was making this point. I don't hate trap, and I don't want to seem mad, but in fact, where the old me at? The same cat who would take that feedback and aim back. I need that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's what I've been saying. Where is that guy? Do you know where that guy is? Do you have his email or phone number? Is he coming back anytime soon? On the track Not Alike, Eminem and Royce to 59 hop on top of this Tay Keith beat that's very much in a style that uh, Black Boy JB has popularized recently. The hook is also like an interpolation of the raindrop drop top bars from the Migos track Bad and Bougie. There are some worthwhile bars on the track. M and Royce have some pretty cool chemistry on the song, but for the most part, trying to fit their respective styles over this very contemporary sound without much in the way of an appreciation as to 
how exactly this whole trap thing works. It just kind of feels like they're trying to uh, fit a round peg into a square hole. The title track on the album, though, I dug pretty much. It seemed like a kookier, older version of Eminem Revitalized, with some pretty hilarious visuals, like riding through someone's cul-de-sac with his windows cracked, bumping their reference tracks. The beat very much matches the violent and comedic and zany tone of Eminem's lyrics. And I think the track also serves as a reminder of how far humor went to make Eminem's older material so much more palatable. Because honestly, these days, Eminem's humor is either not landing or it's just not there because he is way too angry and self-serious. And I actually presume that's because he's legitimately angry and taking himself way too seriously to get a lot of his points across effectively. The song Fall has a pretty chill, spaced out instrumental and a hidden secret feature from Justin Vernon of Bon Iver fame on the hook. It's honestly one of the better sounding songs on the entire record in terms of the instrumental and even Eminem's flow, but I feel like Eminem kind of ruins the potential of the song by throwing out some idiotic and horrendous bars at people who didn't really deserve his ire. For one, Joe Budden I think had some really legitimate criticisms of Eminem's album rollout and the album itself, and then with some of the dumbest bars in the entire song, he attacks people like Tyler the Creator and Earl, and I I get that there are some new and contemporary artists that Eminem doesn't like, who are well-deserving of criticisms that their music is dumb, and it's shallow, and it's meaningless, etc. But now you're just bitterly attacking young, talented artists who are making better projects than you right now. Eminem goes as far as to say, Don't tell me about the culture! I inspired the Hobsons! And the Logics! Yeah, dude, I, I don't know if I would uh, retain bragging rights on that. <laughs> on top of that, you consistently shit on these younger rappers for being materialistic and mumbly and so on and so forth and, and just rapping about their chains. Meanwhile, you help put on 50 Cent. Look, if you guys like 50 Cent, you like 50 Cent, and that's fine. I'm mostly just annoyed at this constant critique from Eminem that there's a lot of this new music out there and it's just not that deep. Meanwhile, 50 Cent's catalog isn't exactly profound or anything. Okay? Yeah, Kamikaze overall, it's not as bad as Revival. There is quite a bit of this record that I think is pretty listenable, a couple tracks that I actually feel are kind of good. But also there is a lot of blissfully ignorant and totally out of touch trash on this thing. A good chunk of it is pretty much unlistenable. It's pretty much a mixed bag with way more misses than hits, even if, again, there are a few spots where Eminem does improve a little bit and seems a bit more aware of his shortcomings and where he might need to go next in order to make his next project more likable. I'm feeling a like to decent four on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new George Clanton album, Slide. This is the new full-length LP from New York-based singer, songwriter, producer, George Clanton, who has been dropping music for a while now under a number of different names and bands. At one point, Mirror Kisses and Kids Garden when he was more of a fixture in the Virginia music scene. But George also releases music currently, I believe, under the name Esprit as well, which if you take a look at the front covers of records like Virtual 
Virtua.zip and 200% Electronica, it should be no surprise that on these releases, George dabbles in a bit of vaporwave, uh, in a bit of chillwave. Those genres and more inform the music under his own name as well on this new album, on which they kind of reach a point of culmination and refinement. While some vaporwave and new age aesthetics do inform the the sound of, of Slide, this album is also a healthy exercise in synth pop, bedroom pop, alternative dance, and shoegaze too. There's a touch of hypnagogic pop on this record as well, even though the cultural touchstones that George references on this album are different than that of the artists that help establish this style of music. James Ferraro, Ariel Pink, John Mouse, Night Jewel. George doesn't really dabble that deeply in the 70s and 80s past that those artists sometimes do. Instead, Clanton has a strong affinity for the 90s, the pop, rock, and dance music of that time. And it really pours through on this new album in the mid-paced rhythms, the blissful atmospheres, the slow-burning angst that comes off of some of the vocals from this record. Sure, while a lot of Slide's production does pull from very contemporary, underground, internet-based music, and there's maybe a bit of Panda Bear mixed in there too, I'm hearing an almost equal equal amount of influence coming from 90s touchstones like Siamese Dream and Sovlaki and Screamadelica. There are some trip-hop rhythms that seem to work their way into these tracks too. And George successfully evokes this era of music, all the sounds and vibes that come with it, without necessarily embracing the production style and the instrumental palette either, as a great deal of this record sounds completely synthetic. Doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of guitar on this thing. Rather, Slide sounds like a deeply synthetic album, and beautifully so. The soundcraft on this record is actually pretty excellent. It is beautiful, it's dense, it's lush, it's psychedelic, it's overwhelming, it's orgasmic, especially on cuts like Make It Forever. The bulk of this track is littered with these enveloping synth chords, droning into oblivion against these very abstract and squiggly lead melodies. There's an explosive burst of synth layers and rhythms on the chorus that kind of explodes with the passion of the new radicals, but presented with the sonic density of My Bloody Valentine. When you come back again, we can come in, make it forever. I also like the driving rock rhythms and the grimy bass on the song Tie Me Down. It's a really gratifying track with some slacker rock frontman vocals. It's a little spare at points, but the track becomes one of the most intoxicating on the entire record. Once the song's heaviest synth layers blossom with some echo-drenched synth leads. Despite a kind of innocuous intro, the song Dumb finishes as one of the most kaleidoscopic and noisy tracks on the entire record. The song transitions quickly into the next cut, Blast Off, which is uh, kind of a drony new age cut. I cannot emphasize the segue into this track enough as it feels just like an extension. It feels like I'm listening to the same track, but a more pillowy and blissful instrumental version. It's basically an extended outro of sorts. For the most part, that's the first five tracks of the album or so. Super beautiful, super compelling, very tight, infectious tunes with an addictive euphoria. So far, it is very good. I do like it a lot, even if a weak link in the chain has kind of presented itself at 
this point, that being the singing and the lyrics. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some vocal highlights on the album, but much of the time the vocals do have a somewhat boyish and underwhelming tone, and they can get lost in the haze of synthesizers on this album because they're mixed a little low or they're not that distinct, like on the opening of the track, Dumb. Plus, there are so many songs on this album about being in love or love on the rocks, which is a tried and true song topic, it's fine, but I wouldn't say George necessarily brings an interesting lyrical spin to this topic. The lyrics mostly feel like an emotional placeholder just to kind of fill space because for the style of music George is making, there should be a vocal there. Not to mention that I think he wants to consciously enhance the sort of sentimental and nostalgic vibe of the music. The title track gets central with a dance beat straight out of the 90s, a murky synth bass line, some saxophone leads as well. It's got a lot of nice sonic touches, a beat switch in the last leg, some wintry synth chords. But again, the vocals come off a bit weak on the track, the pacing feels a little weird as the song shifts from one section to the next as the momentum doesn't really keep up. The vocals left me feeling kind of underwhelmed on the song Monster 2, but the track clearly has a stronger melody and sense of direction. The following track You Lost Me There is likable enough, but it's pretty much a more epic reprise of the track Make It Forever. So hopefully you really like that song because now it's louder, it's bigger, and it's two times longer, with slightly more expressive vocals. Now the album loops back around to this song because Slide is a concept album, a narrative album of sorts. Even though a lot of the lovesick and heartbroken lyrics on this album feel a little surface level, they do tell a story track to track, with George being lonely and living loose, then George wanting that long-lasting love with this person who he has in mind, then he's being tied down and tied to that person. The love and the relationship fractures with the song Dumb, and then there is kind of a separation point. The song Monster is all about regret and being with other people instead of being with each other. While you lost me there, even though it is a reprise, it does bring the same tune back with some more themes of love and longing and kind of just brings all the feelings of the album together and wraps them in a neat bow, I suppose, while also wishing for that person to come back and wondering if this love is meant to be, I guess. There is an encore interlude on the album and then a following track, an epilogue, I suppose, Walk Slowly, which is a pretty feel-good moment on the record with a nice sense of finality, even if... When it comes to song structure, it is one of the weaker tracks on the record and does fizzle out with its ending. I do like the fun rhythms and the cheeky turntable scratches on the cut, though. Overall, I generally like this album a lot. I do think it does have its shortcomings, its flaws. There are moments where I think it doesn't go quite far enough, but I think there are a lot of good and promising things here. The production, the sound, the rhythms on this album, and some of the tunes are amazing. This album has a lot of passion, a lot of heart, even if I do think the vocals and lyrics kind of fall short. The love, romance, breakup, concept, narrative of the record was a cool and a fine idea, but did George go into it with the detail and the scope that I think he could have? Not really. For a concept album, this thing is kind of short of breath, and I enjoy quite a bit one of the shortest breakup albums of all time, and that is Tony Molina's Dist and Dismissed. So yes, at some points the vocals are kind of meh, the lyrics do feel a little surface level, they border on vapid, and with the wealth of sounds that Clanton presents during the first leg of this record, I think there could have been more diversity on this LP overall, more tracks, because George does sink quite a bit of this album's runtime into 
a few longer cuts, especially this reprise. This song and the track that it's building off of take up about a quarter of the album's runtime, which is a bit much, especially considering that the actual closing track of this thing feels like a non-statement. It just feels like the effort, the focus, and the passion of the record was applied onto these songs in a somewhat lopsided way, as there are quite a few tracks on here that feel almost unnecessary or just pale in comparison to others, and you can't really afford to have many snoozers or underwhelming moments in a track list that is so short in a runtime that doesn't really afford you a whole lot of breathing room. Enjoyed this quite a bit, wasn't blown away, not head over heels, but still wanting more and looking forward to what George is doing next, feeling a decent two strong seven on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the brand new Idols album, Joy as an Act of Resistance. This is the latest full-length LP from UK post-punk upstarts Idols, who dropped an impeccable debut album last year, Brutalism, a record that truly lived up to its name as the band took the bass sounds of very groovy and lyrically dense post-punk music, then turned it up with the highest volumes, the nastiest distortions, veins popping out of it in every direction. I love the savage collision of influences on this album, from Crass to The Fall to Sex Pistols. I love the gravity and guttural lead vocals from frontman Joe Talbot, as well as the sticky hooks, the very cheeky, thoughtful lyrics, which a lot of the time were pretty socially charged. I took slight issue on this album with the band's somewhat one-dimensional style and cloaking some of their politics on the record in some esoteric symbolism, but mostly this thing was a fantastic punk record with a lot of great things going for it. Fast forward to now and idols are following this album up faster than I thought they would, and I wasn't really sure what to think going into the album because I wasn't super crazy about a lot of the teaser tracks on first listen and I couldn't really glean anything from them as far as an overall direction for this record. However, for the band Idols, I think Joy is an improvement on all imaginable fronts. The animalistic and throttling punk rock that was on the group's last record is still present, so that carries over. The politics the band delivers on this record are clearer, more thoughtful, more upfront. They are poetically put and really kind of inescapable on this record, as it seems like there's some sort of social ill the band is taking on with each song. Whether they are attacking macho, overly stoic masculinity on the track Samaritans, or media-born insecurity on the track Television. The slower and heavier and more dramatic cuts from the band's last record go over so much better on Joy, as the band delivers more interesting lyrics, punchier production, a more dynamic progression, like on the opening track from this thing, Colossus, which features these super heavy drums, wailing guitars in the background creating a lot of atmosphere, pummeling bass. All of this comes to a really frantic and noisy crescendo toward the back end of the track. It almost reads like something off of Swan's To Be Kind, in a way, aesthetically. But the intense run the band plays through on this track is packed into a five-minute runtime, and the lyrics make for a powerful statement on regret and self-loathing and living in the shadow of traditionalism and your parents. The album transitions next into the track Never Fight a Man with a Perm. With a plain-faced reference to Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made for Walkin', the track is pretty much a straightforward takedown of brainless muscleheads 
ads calling guys who spend every day in the gym hooked up on gear, uh, walking thyroids and catalogs. I also love the song. It was a very slow, heavy, massive, and muscular riffy chorus. The critiques on masculine stereotypes get even stronger on the track I mentioned previously, Samaritans, where Talbot can be heard shouting these phrases, usually meant to make men kind of bottle up their feelings or fall in line. Man up, sit down, chin up, don't cry, grow some balls. I also like the statement on the track of wearing a mask of masculinity and it ends up wearing you. And the sound of the track, the performance is pretty brutal with some soaring, very, very sour and abrasive guitars kind of wailing away against a very steady rhythm section. The song I'm Scum is a somewhat tongue-in-cheek self-critique where Talbot portrays himself as being kind of thoughtful and righteous. Someone who seems pretty fair and pretty just, but simultaneously comes off maybe a little pretentious, a little contentious too, a lower class. However, I, I don't really mind some of those characteristics though. It's, it's maybe why I with the vibe of the song. It just seems like he's framing himself to be someone who is unapologetically not living up to the standards of perfection and traditionalism. At one point on the song, referring to himself as a snowflake and saying that this snowflake's an avalanche. Overall, the song just kind of seems like a lot of very funny right-wing prodding. The bass and drum grooves on the track, oddly enough, are very peppy and are painted with some very colorful and noisy guitars. A lot of the time, it seems like Joe's voice and the guitars are in a constant competition to see which can make the track sound filthier. The song Danny Nadelko, though, I don't find to be as grimy as a lot of other cuts on this record. In fact, it's pretty catchy and lighthearted by comparison with a lot of the other songs here. It's one of my favorite songs on the album, and it's pretty much a rager about change and immigration in England. It's about unity. It's about acceptance of others. As he goes through a series of lyrics referring to people who he knows personally or people uh, in his family life who are aliens or came from a different country or a different race, the song is actually named after someone who he refers to as his best friend. In reference to him and some of the other foreigners who he's talking about on the track saying some of my favorite lyrics on the entire record. He's made of bones. He's made of blood. He's made of flesh. He's made of love. He's made of you. He's made of me. Unity. Also love the following. Fear leads to panic. Panic leads to pain. Pain leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. I also love how the band incorporates elements of oi punk into this track with the giant group chanting, ah, yeah, 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 background vocals. Oi does have some pretty blue collar roots, but it's not traditionally the most progressive section of the punk subgenre. So it's interesting the band are repurposing it for a different kind of message. The song Great is also a blistering critique of the rise of nationalism in England right now, poking fun at Brexiteers and older generations for being unable to accept change, saying Blighty wants his country back, 50-inch screen in his cul-de-sac, Wombat charm of the Union Jack, he cries at the price of a bacon bap. Islam didn't eat your hamster. Change isn't a crime. So won't you take my hand, sir, and sing with me in time? It's another socially charged barn burner with a sing-along chorus, which is actually one of a couple moments on the album that involves spelling. There's a lot more spelling on this new album. Why so much spelling? <laughs> the... Track Love Song is one of the spacier, mid-paced cuts on the record and is 
Talbot and company uh, kind of lampooning the idea of modern love, modern romance. Not a topic that was all that thrilling on the band's last record, especially the track Slow Savage, which was a little tedious. But this love song here is so much more satirical, so much funnier, and so much more exciting instrumentally, as a lot of what's said on the track seems to come down to this manic devotion displayed through almost completely empty gestures. Look at this card I bought. It says I love you. Also the la 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 background vocals that kind of guide us out of the chorus seem to put out another reference to this idea of insanity playing a role in this love that Talbot is singing about. The song June is the most dramatic, spacey, and atmospheric cut on the entire record. Interesting that they would place it right in the center of the track list. It's another moment on the album where the slow, despondent guitars come together into a barrage that reads a lot like a new Swans album. Some very simple and hypnotic drums thumping gently throughout the cut, some droney keys, building guitars, and absolutely tortured vocals from Talbot as it's pretty clear he is singing about the loss of a newborn child, a stillborn. Finishing the track off singing Baby Shoes for Sale, Never Worn, Never Worn. The track does come to a pretty powerful crescendo, but kind of fizzles out afterwards, but it's it's still an emotionally potent cut on the album, even if it's not structurally the best. Because believe me when I say it is dark. It is supremely dark. The song Cry To Me sees the band changing things up in an interesting way with them doing like a 12-bar blues-type structure, and uh, Talbot is, like, vocally wailing his way through it. The guitars and the bass are absolutely insane. The track, to me, reads as, like, the peak of dark humor on the record. Meanwhile, the song Rottweiler stands out as one of the most fiery closers I've heard on a new record all year. The lyrics come off as some of the most absurd and blunt on the entire record, which is a little refreshing because uh, a bulk of the album is pretty political. That absurdity that was laced throughout a lot of songs on brutalism isn't quite as prevalent on this new album, though it is nice to get a taste of it here and there on cuts like this and Gram Rock. Instrumentally speaking, the track is fast, it's aggressive, but it's pretty straightforward. However, as the band progresses toward a very noisy and cacophonous finish, the screws on this thing start to loosen and the performances, the vocals, the uh, the tightness of the instrumentation starts to melt away a little bit and the band starts sounding truly demented. Again, as I said, very powerful finish to the album. And overall, I, I love this record. Supremely an improvement over the band's last effort. Way more diversity on here, much more in terms of interest interesting lyrics, electrifying performances, pretty much everything I loved about the last album, but vastly improved. If I think the band made a huge change or shifted away from something on this new album, there aren't quite as many songs on this thing that dabble in absurdist or self-deprecating humor, but I think the very smart, thoughtful, and well-put politics on this record combined with the more dynamic performances and the wider diversity of stylistic influences are a good trade-off. While idols still continue not to be the most original band under the sun, they still kind of wear their influences on their sleeve pretty boldly. They're not reinventing the wheel or anything, but they do approach this album with great production, top-notch performances, great tunes, great songs, and a pretty distinct personality, too. I'm feeling a light to decent nine on this thing.
So what I have next to my head over here are the writer and producer credits and the track listing for this new surprise dropped Eminem album, Kamikaze. And there are a lot of interesting names that pop up in the writer's section and the producer section of this record. I mean, one would think that Eminem actually took some of the criticisms that people had for his new album to heart, even though he's lashing out at everyone. He's telling it like it is. He's telling everybody off. Whoever dissed him or said a bad thing about his music, man, he's taking them all to task. But on this new record, he actually has like some pretty good and, and tasteful and contemporary and trendy producers on here. He's got Mike Will Made It. He's got Ronnie J. Even the people in the Swedish kind of electro pop band Little Dragon have uh, writer's credits on one of the tracks of this thing. So Eminem uh, actually picked out some decent production and some decent producers. But um, you see, there there are some people who I, I guess are not all that happy about their inclusion with this record, uh, most notably, uh, maybe the most surprising name to pop up in the writer's section here, more surprising than Kendrick Lamar, certainly, uh, Mr. Bon Iver himself, Justin Vernon, uh, who has taken to Twitter because his, his vocals, which pop up on the song Fall, which I was surprised to hear when uh, I gave the, the record a listen, uh, his 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 vocals pop up on a track that features some of the most problematic problematic lyrics on the entire record and and now he's he's not that happy about it it's, it's not a good look for the Bon Iver brand because uh, a song where Eminem uh, calls out Tyler the Creator and says Tyler create nothing I see why you call yourself a f- bitch it's not just because you lack attention. It's because you worship D12's balls. You're sacrilegious. If you're going to critique me, you better at least be as good or better. Like, Jesus Christ. The dude is is said to be bisexual. Like, what the fuck? I mean, and, and maybe not even bisexual. Maybe Tyler, uh, the creator, is... Uh, a uh, homosexual. Maybe he is uh, sort of partially out of the closet. We we don't fully know yet. We know that he has hinted toward such things in his lyrics. I know that Eminem just kind of flagrantly lets that word fly uh, without much regard for it, but it does make me wonder, and I guess kind of the, the phraseology of the lyrics maybe do point to this, but it makes me wonder if, if he knew that going into this bar and said, you know what, I'm I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to make myself like a total asshole and, and do it. And, um, yeah, he, he pretty much does. And, uh, by way of that, uh, he makes Justin Vernon not look too good either. And Justin says, uh, was not in the studio for the Eminem track came in for a session with BJ Burton and Mike will not a fan of the message. It's tired. Asked them to change the track. Wouldn't do it. Thanks for listening to uh, BRN. That's his uh, new album project, his new collaborative project with uh, Aaron, the uh, dude from uh, The National. So they wouldn't change the track. I I don't know what exact changes he's looking for. Would M change his lyrics? Would they pull his vocals out? Was he just chilling in the studio with 
Mike and BJ and just kind of like riffing on some vocals, just laying down some tracks for whatever. Because if so, like Jesus Christ, you've not not just from the perspective of, oh, well, Eminem might have your vocals on a track and he might say something that uh, you philosophically don't agree with or you're offended by. It's it's not even so much a matter of that. Of course it is, but it just kind of seems like you're letting so much of your artistic creativity go and just throwing it into the hands of uh, producers and individuals who clearly are not handling it with the same care that you would if I am to assume that you truly do have the total clueless separation from this song and the situation that you're claiming to have. Um, somebody who's been in the industry as long as, as Justin has been, uh, someone with huge name recognition, uh, I, I can't imagine that he would it, it just doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't make sense that he would just like record random shit with guys like Mike Will made it and just say, yeah, do do anything with it. Oh, will you change that? No, I, I have, I have literally no control in this situation. Okay. Bye-bye. Um, I, I guess it's really unfortunate. Uh, the position that some musicians find themselves in, in the industry, uh, I guess just try to be more careful next time with, uh, who you allow to have control and ownership of the things you do and record. Uh, because I guess it can come back to bite you and you'll have to go on to Twitter for a bit of a mea culpa and uh, hope that people don't take issue. Uh, he sort of follows this statement up saying, Eminem is one of the best rappers of all time. There is no doubt. I have and will respect that, though this is not the time to criticize youth. It is the time to listen, to act. It is certainly not time for slurs. Wish they would have listened when we asked them to change it. Um, yeah, I pretty much agree. It's a cringy moment on the song, a cringy moment yet again for Eminem. And um, I don't know. It's just uh, it's not a very good look, I guess. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that people can't express themselves the way that they want to. But here's the thing. Eminem, one of the top rappers in the game, he's in his 40s at this point. He's clearly trying to reach out and not make some kind of clever statement by use of this slur or anything else. It's it's not even really the slur as much as it is his employment of it. Like, how does he use it? What does he do with the word? Basically, attack somebody who has pretty much hinted in their music that they're not exactly straight, a fellow artist who... I mean, is connecting with the youth for all intents and purposes is making better music than you right now. Like in comparison with Flower Boy, Eminem's last record revival is absolute dog shit. Like there's no comparison. There's not a single song on revival that bests a song on Flower Boy, even with Eminem rapping consistently over the record, like, but cannibal, animal, a lyrical miracle, a spherical, pyrical. Like, okay, we get it. You can rap fast. It's basically like watching somebody jerk off fast at this point. It's not that impressive. You've been doing it for a long time. Like, honestly, how does your music sound? What are you saying? How are you saying it? What's your message? Like these things matter as much as, if not more, than the speed at which you are rapping. 
Like we, we, we really don't, we really don't need it. And, um, especially if you're just going to be a jackass with it, you know, it's, it's also funny that there's a point on the album when he talks about his influence over Hobson. Well, Eminem also has had influence over Tyler. There's very clearly a Tyler influence rather than an Eminem influence on Tyler's work early into his career. And I guess the point I'm trying to make here is maybe Eminem should be appreciative of what <laughs> little influence he has left in uh, hip hop and the music industry. Because here's the thing, like, I can't think of an artist who was as huge as he was in the 2000s, but like push the clock forward 10 years. And there is really so little of Eminem sound and influence in, in rap right now. There, there really truly is, you know, it hasn't disappeared completely, but it seems like people are actively trying to scrub it away, uh, or just go into different directions. Um, and the artists out there who are very much influenced by what he does, they're either influenced strictly by, the best and earliest records in his career, or uh, they number as some of the cringiest and most awful and unpalatable rappers uh, in the game right now, whether you're talking uh, Hobson, whether you're talking any number of these white guys who can't stop rapping like they're a constipated energizer bunny. So I'm going to leave it at that. Justin Vernon, uh, unfortunately, again, embarrassed about his inclusion in the new Eminem album kind of sucks. Uh, but I guess let this be a cautionary tale for him and anybody else who just kind of records whatever with whoever and allows them to do anything they want with it, I guess. And, uh, let's uh, do a letter from a fan over here because, uh, somebody sent in a good question, a good point, And I thought I would respond to it. So the message reads, hello, Anth man, I was curious as to whether or not you consider the artist when putting a score on an album. What I mean by this is, do you think that, for example, To Pimp a Butterfly would have received a 10? Would it have come from a completely unknown artist you'd never heard of before and just happened to stumble upon? Or in contrast, would the album still be a 10 if it came from someone like 6ix9ine? Obviously, given that the music lyrics and delivery remain the same. Or do you think that you would need to be a bit intrigued already by the artists in their previous work for you to give it a 10? Godspeed. Uh, P.S. I dreamt about you the other night where my middle school class went on a field trip to your house. You had a weird house with a lot of lit candles everywhere. But it was fun meeting you. I actually wish I did live in a house with a bunch of lit candles everywhere. That would be fucking cool. All right. So uh, the question over here, <clears throat> would, uh, uh, would my score or opinion change on an album if the artist was different or uh, whatever? You know, this is an idea and a concept that's thrown out there a lot. Um, people say, oh, well, you wouldn't like this album if, if so-and-so did it, or you only like this album because this guy did it, because you, you give that guy good scores no matter what. Um, you know, I'll, I think the question here is twofold. Uh, one, would I give an album a 10 or could an album be a 10 if, if it were from an artist who is completely unknown? Um, I mean, I, I don't see why not. I will say that you know, context, we can never completely ignore context. And context being, uh, hey, I enjoyed the previous two albums from this guy, and I gave one 
an eight and I gave one a nine. And yet I feel like this new one over here tops both of those. And logically speaking, you know, we've kind of gone up the escalator of scores here. On top of that, I feel like there's not a bad track on the album or a track that I don't love. So given that, in my opinion, it's like a relatively flawless playlist or track list, and he's built quality-wise on every release up until this point, I guess that's one way to kind of get to a 10. Uh, But technically speaking, I think somebody who is relatively unknown... um, could land a 10 as well, based off of the criteria of, again, uh, not a single bad track in the track list. I love every single song on it. On top of that, uh, do I think the record is as good or is as enjoyable other albums that I've given a 10 to? Is the sound of the record, is the style unique? Is it cutting edge? You know, do, do I feel like this person's sound is is one of a kind and really stand out? Um, I mean, all of those characteristics or qualities or criterias or checkboxes I'm also applying to other albums that I've given that score to. So technically speaking, again, I I couldn't imagine why someone who's unknown couldn't potentially get a 10 out of 10 score. Uh, But again, you know, you also have to look at the other albums that I've given tens to or those other artists who have landed that score, who have made albums that are of that quality. Uh, typically they're not just purely coming out of nowhere because, uh, an album like two pimp a butterfly requires resources. You know, you don't just get flying Lotus Thundercat and George Clinton on your album being a total fucking nobody, you know, an album like the money store requires an artist like Zach Hill who is incredibly talented and has years and years and years and years of experience under his belt getting to that point uh, in order to, to achieve an album that adventurous and forward-thinking. Uh, and I and I think the, the same is true of a band like Swans, who have been at it for years and years and years. I think the same is true of Kanye West, who has been at it for years and years and years and years. Again, not that you need to be a veteran, in order to achieve that score. But I think there is something to be said for these people who have clearly built their talent level up, you know, and and that's the thing. Somebody who's completely unknown or is just starting and doesn't have much going for them. You know, Kendrick could not have made to pimp a butterfly at the time that he released section 80. He didn't have the experience. He didn't have the connections. He didn't, have the tools necessary to create that album. It took a handful of years and I'm sure a lot of writing and a lot of practice and a lot of, you know, preconception to come up with that record, to come up with a very mature, thoughtful, creative, one of a kind conceptual rap album. You know, that's not something that a a beginner just kind of barfs out. Again, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. Uh, There are people who are prodigies of all types of shades. But still, you know, I, I think, uh, uh, again, it's unlikely, I guess is, is what I'll say. Then I feel like the other section of this question is, would it still be a 10 if it came from someone like 6ix9ine? Well, I, I feel like the question there essentially is, if I don't like the person who came out with the record, could they feasibly come out with a 10? I mean, there are lots of people who come out with records that I like and I give them positive scores and I think they make good music, but I find them to be 
uh, either annoying or unlikable for a variety of different uh, variety of different reasons, whether it be something terrible and controversial that they did, or um, maybe I just find them to kind of be an asshole or a jackass or something. So um, yeah, I mean, the, there are lots of things like, for example, uh, recently that I find very obnoxious and stupid about Kanye West and the way that he conducts himself and the things that he said in interviews. Uh, but when it came to the consistency the forward thinking sounds and uh, the incredible chemistry that was presented on uh, Kitsy Ghosts, I, I had no qualms with giving that record a 10 because I think it's a really fantastic record. I think it's a unique album. Um, I think it's a one of a kind record. I think the flow is fantastic. I love every song on it. Um, I think Kanye and Cuddy are at their best in a while on, uh, you know, respectively on that entire project. So uh, personally, I don't, I don't really have any qualms with saying, I feel like this person whose conduct or behavior I don't really like has made an album that I think is really good. Um, you know, I think another example, uh, could potentially be, uh, you know, Varg, AKA Burzum. I mean, you can't really deny the man's contributions to the black metal scene, despite the fact that he has a lot of views that I vehemently disagree with, and the guy is legit a murderer. But again, I enjoy uh, quite a bit of music that Varg has either played on or contributed to. Um, you know, I wouldn't say like it's my favorite in the world. You know, you guys have seen my record collection; it's not full of Burzum records or whatever. Um, but again, I can't I can't deny the guy's uh, incredible and uh, important contributions to uh, the black metal scene. You know, and I can't deny that he's made he's made good music. So, no, I I I don't think um, if Six Nine had come out with Two Pimp a Butterfly, it, granted it, it stayed exactly the same, uh, that I guess it would be any less enjoyable of an album. Again, sort of observed more in a vacuum. But uh, you know, let let's look at it in a more uh, I guess literal sense of the the behavior here, which is why you're really kind of bringing up Six Nine in the first place. If Kendrick had been legitimately accused of and and convicted of the type of behavior that Six Nine is you know being brought to court for, uh, would I enjoy Two Pimp Two Pimp a Butterfly as much? Um, I guess it would call maybe it would make me enjoy it a little bit less. But in the respect that there are elements of Two Pimp a Butterfly that are about bettering yourself and, you know, thinking of God and so on and so forth. And if Kendrick was exhibiting that behavior, it would be a huge hypocritical mental disconnect, you know? And certainly there are moments where the, the thought process of Toop and the Butterfly can be questioned, but there's not really a point at which I guess you could take Kendrick's behavior and say, well, he's advocating that people do X, Y, and Z and love themselves and this, that, and the other, but yet he clearly hates himself and he's doing all this horrible shit and he's a terrible person. I guess from that angle, it would make Two Pimp a Butterfly a more difficult and a weirder listen. Um, but that's, again, not to say that the rapping wouldn't still be good. That's not to say that the songwriting still wouldn't be good. That's not to say that the production still, still wouldn't be good. Uh, that's, again, really to just kind of make a comment on the philosophical ethos of the album making so much less sense because the behavior of the narrator 
uh, again, is a disconnect and a major inconsistency. It's uh, it's a hypocrisy. I guess it, I guess it does kind of make uh, uh, albums like Two Pimp a Butterfly more difficult to swallow if the narrator is uh, kind of giving some advice or making some kind of social critique, and yet they themselves are a total piece of garbage. Um, but again, I, I feel like that's a, a critique specific to to Pimp a Butterfly. Could um, I enjoy the the money store as much as I do if I found out that every member of Death Grips was uh, a serial killer, I guess? Um, I guess it would make me a little uneasy at first, but I guess there's nothing <laughs> particular about the album that uh, advocates against being a serial killer. So, so I mean... Again, we're, we're kind of getting into the weeds here, and uh, it's it's a weird point to make. But this is, a, in my opinion, a bit of a weird question and a, and a bit of a weird, I guess, hypothetical to pose. You know, we're we're talking about well, would the behaviors of a person who didn't actually exhibit those behaviors would that make you change the? It's it's a, such a fucked up and weird hypothetical, and it, and it's odd that we put ourselves as music fans through these thought experiments because I don't know, for whatever reason, we can't just trust that our taste says an album is good. Uh, we have to kind of trick ourselves and question ourselves with saying, well, would you even like that album if, if a different artist made it? So, so it is a weird thought experiment to be going through anyway, and a bit of a pointless one in, in my opinion. But, um, again, to go back to the money store, I guess there aren't any huge, major philosophical inconsistencies that that wouldn't be brought up in in that scenario but still it's it's a really weird way to look at consuming music <laughs> i think i'm just going to leave it at that sorry if uh, in you know your view here i didn't come to any super conclusive answers to anything that you've posed here but honestly i, I don't think there are definitive answers to all this it's really a fucking grayscale and it kind of all depends on the uh, the point of view of the person being uh, asked these questions, honestly, because there are people who, you know, will not listen to albums and artists who they uh, uh, see as uh, being the polar opposite of them, ideologically speaking, or uh, uh, indulging in behaviors that they don't uh, morally approve of. And, you know, if, if that's your prerogative, if that's how you want to go about consuming things and listening to things and watching things, that's fine. You know, that's, that's on you. If that's what makes life a more positive and a more enjoyable journey for yourself, do it, go for it. Um, but, uh, and, and I think that's a perfectly legitimate choice for someone to make. So I'm going to leave it at that. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fantano. If you want to check out the reviews that I discussed in this episode and more hit us up over at youtube.com slash the needle drop or youtube.com slash fantano this thing was edited and pulled together by jonah so shout out to him you can also follow us on social media at twitter.com slash the needle drop the needle drop on facebook a fantano on instagram and make sure to subscribe to this podcast feed leave a review as well if you would like and we will see you in the next episode Needle Drop Podcast, Anthony Fantano, forever. Mm